In March of 2020, Carlos Vieira, owner and founder of KDD Media Company, wrote a memoir about his own personal struggles entitled Knocking Doors Down. In his book, he relives his experiences as a drug addict and the ultimate path that helped to save his life. 100% of all sales of this book are donated to the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. Go to kddmediacompany.com to pick up a copy for you or a loved one in need of inspiration and motivation. Also available on Amazon in hardcover, paper back and ebook these eyes i'm feeling it keep going cry every night <laughs> mike in the rocky for you killing it on the mic jason the chance here it's knocking doors down and uh today tony hoffman Hoff. you know they call david hasselhoff the hoff not anymore tony hoffman's the new hoff he is He's the, the man. new Hoff, for sure. So, Absolutely. Tony, you want to hear his story. I mean, addict to prison to the Olympics. Uh, you know, just an extraordinary guy, an example of truly turning your life around. In this episode, you know, I mean, we touch on alarming statistics on sexual abuse related to teen substance abuse. You know, how early that people start using substances that mm-hmm. leads to addiction and related to that kind of trauma. Also, his bond with a, a black man in prison which really was taboo yeah. and that you don't do. Yeah, oh yeah. And so he had gets, to get approved and all that good stuff. Yeah, he goes deep into that. And uh, why addiction? This is really insightful from him when we got into him and I talking about addiction as a disease and him saying that not necessarily it's you know more of maybe a mental disorder as it relates to our trauma because mm-hmm. you know good luck finding anyone with addiction that doesn't have some sort of trauma at some point right. it's uh, probably very incredibly rare that it doesn't so we're going to get into it cuz it's a longer episode tony's talk is phenomenal we recommend that you share this episode with a lot of people Absolutely. and also follow him on social media as well at tony m huffman that's on Instagram. And just a reminder, the Carlos Vieira Foundation right now, they are selling 5150 energy drinks. We have stopped the production of that. And if you want to get more info, if you want to do uh, rather an order to have shipped to you, or if you are living in the Central Valley and it makes sense to drive down, you can get a curbside pickup on the 5150 energy drinks by going to carlosvierafoundation.org. Click on the shop link and get them there. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams, and working hard. Always striving to make those dreams a reality. We believe life's too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road ahead that you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. Listeners of Knocking Doors Down, head over to 5150LTM.com. That website again, 51FIFTYLTM.com. Well, Tony Hoffman making the trek uh, from the Fresno Clovis area to the booming area of Livingston. Yes, it's booming. Trust me, those almond trees are uh, definitely booming. <laughs> oh, the, the, me and Mikey, this uh, we we have the worst sinuses. So it being out by the orchard, we'll, we're in here. It looks like we went like five rounds with Mike Tyson sometimes. Damn wow. sniffles <laughs> all damn day. So every and you go into a store, of course, during this time, and everyone's staring at you because you're you're sniffling <laughs> wow. and sneezing. It's like every cough I do. Nope, just uh, out. Allergies, I can't yeah. breathe out here. Yeah, right? Oh, it's the total shits for sure. So, you know, Tony, we filled people in on the ba- on your background already. And, um, of course, you're out there on the road doing great things, uh, mentoring the youth primarily. 
you know, for me, it's always drawing on similarities of, of stuff that, that just is intriguing to me. And one of the things that I found interesting was seemingly one of your first experiences with drugs was seventh grade, wanting to get approval from a girl. And when I read that or saw that also in the video that's available at your website, mm -hmm. to me, that was such an interesting thing because it's such a weird period in our lives where we're starting to discover that stuff our sexuality and things of that nature and, and some of those insecurities come out. That's right. Um, for me, it was, I was missing some things at home. It was a home piece that was missing. I typically say that there's, um, there's three levels to how p people or humans are connected. You have your home piece, then you have your institutional piece and you have your societal piece. Okay. Um, now that's not to say that I come from a broken home. My parents have been married 46 years upper middle class family. I had everything that I needed in terms of um, school, school stuff, sports equipment. Right. I went to one of the top public schools in the United States, Clovis Unified School District. But my parents were very involved in work and not emotionally involved in myself. Mm -hmm. And not because they didn't want to be, um, they're boomers. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they're providers, yeah. right? They're, they're emotionally unintelligent but they're provider and they're the providers and the, the ability in which they can provide is resilience. Yeah. They've worked hard, worked 14 hour days. Mm -hmm. They have a retirement account. We always had what we wanted. We grew up in a nice home. So we had what the boomers were taught. Sure. To do. Yeah. yeah. Right? Is to prepare, it, it, have exactly. that retirement, you know, you build your the American dream. And then you get these these millennials that are like myself that are more emotional beings. And that's not to say that generations before the millennials weren't emotional because they were. <laughs> yeah. But somebody like my brother who was two years older, he didn't struggle emotionally like I did. He took on more of their mold, put his head down, got a job, bought a house, married at 22, He's been married for 16 years or whatever it is. Um, but that wasn't me. Right. Me, it was, I needed to be more emotionally coddled and not necessarily coddled, but um, emotion and time meant so much more to me than equipment, right. more than a bicycle, more than, uh, and I may have thought that those things were of value, but in, in reality, it was, I wanted my dad to show up to my basketball games. Yeah, wow. yeah, for sure. That was the most important thing. Yeah, uh, chills on that. I can relate that, to that so well because my dad uh, owned a very large trucking company. My mom owned, a, you know, um, travel agencies, and uh, you know, I had every damn GI Joe figure you could think of, and bicycles and all that stuff. So I, I get what you're saying, and I've never thought of it in that way. So my parents are in trucking. Really? So you know from yeah. your dad uh, what trucking can be like, and my parents are you know upper management. So mom was a regional regional operations manager for SIA Freight for most of my high school, and she was gone four days a week because right. she was managing 250 employees from here to Utah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and my dad worked those 14-hour days. So when I didn't really get the emotional validation and empowerment that I needed at home, I had to find it. Um, in society right. and that was obviously I didn't know what I was doing mm -hmm. I was just a 12 year old seeking attention yeah. I didn't understand why so when I didn't get it at home I started looking for it at school and when you start looking for validation out in the wild when you don't get it at home uh, it's never typically with the in individuals who are healthy in their own mental su support system for how they view themselves yeah. it's always other wounded souls yeah. Right. We, we trauma bond. We find we, other people 
who have experienced similar situations and think and are processing what we're experiencing similarly. So for me, it was, you know, hanging out with the class clowns, hanging out with the bullies, hanging out with the ones that were starting to use drugs, because we were all at that time experiencing our own trauma. Yeah, or sure. these, uh, my friend Nathan Harmon, who speaks around the country, I, I got to partner with him in Alabama this year before this COVID thing hit. He calls them moments of impact, right? We were all like experiencing that. these moments of impact as young kids that were kind of shaping and molding our behavior. And so we all kind of started clicking together because we had similar moments of impact, or at least we were processing them similarly. And that was me trying to be validated. Mm. A girl says, hey, I'm looking for some weed. Do you know where yeah. I can get some weed at? And I'm like, yeah, I can show up for you and provide what you need. And that will make me feel like I'm a part of something. Sure. Right. But it's really putting me a part of something that's going to become self-destructive. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing there, too, is that uh, even though you may not have had that direct connection to weed, that there's something about us, those of us that end up finding addiction that we're so damn resourceful. Yes, uh, because we've had to, and I think what you're talking about, and I've really never thought of it in this way, is filling some of our emo own emotional and mental gaps for ourselves because we've had to. That's right. And so we have it, uh, as you say, it, uh, being out there, seeking it from others with similar damage, probably why, you know, with uh, addicts, we end up in repeating patterns with relationships and, uh, you know, the cycle of yep. get sober, fall off, get sober, fall off. Just think of it as... Uh just take us back to ground zero as primates, you know, and just call ourselves primates, right? What do we do? We learn how to survive. Yeah. And as humans, we have emotional needs. doesn't matter who you are. And so we have physical needs. We have emotional needs. I would say we also have spiritual needs. We will figure out how to get those needs met. Whether or not those survival skills that we, we acquire are actually beneficial to us that's that's the tricky part, right? <laughs> is because you don't get it at yeah. home, so then you develop a survival instinct of this is how I'm going to receive my emotional need. But if you weren't taught it correctly, then you go about it your own way. Right. When you go about it your own way, you become the person that most people think is just, you know, a piece of crap teenager that's a punk kid that is disrupting the class. When yeah. in reality, it's a broken soul that needs a need met and he doesn't know how or she doesn't know how to get that need met so she's trying to do or he's trying to do whatever they can to receive whatever they what it is that they need without even knowing it yeah these are all subconscious like you got to be spending years in therapy <laughs> years in meditation to understand how this process actually breaks down because the ego will block most of it yeah mm -hmm. our ego and our pride will stop us from you know circulating back to our childhood and saying yeah that hurt yeah not seeing dad at my basketball games, that makes me want to cry. Sure. As a 36-year-old man. Yeah. No. It still hurts. Uh, yeah. And the, and there are, and I, I know for, for me, coming from, from my background, a lot of it was to silence any of those serious hurts. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, was really the launching point as the... Um, and and it's odd because, and I believe you know in the, the documentary uh, that's available on your website, you spoke on the... Almost we use to gain a connectivity with others and then I'll ultimately go right back to where we didn't want to be in that isolation of our using. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a false coping mechanism and I call, it, I call it the doorway and it's mentioned in my documentary, but I don't really break it down. I'll break it down now. Is basically there's an invisible doorway in life, a universal doorway, 
and we walk through this doorway and on the other side of the doorway are things that change the way we feel um, or improper survival techniques. Right. Some people anger, violence, substance abuse, um, sexual desires. Um, you even put uh, child molesters in there to the desire to have sexual acts with a young being. There's all kinds of things that are on the other side of this doorway. When you walk through the other side of this doorway, there's a promise of fixing what's broken. Right. It's an immediate, I'm fixed. Yeah. yeah. I feel better. Okay. Now you've got a heightened sense of euphoria. It feels as if you, you, you're, you're a rush, you're alive, you feel better. And immediately for those of us who are different in, in the terms of addiction, we, we have the addiction component to our brains, we don't stop there. We have to do that again right? because that felt good. Right. Then when we do it again, it's like, yes, this, this is how I just become whole mm -hmm. is I just partake in this activity. This activity is what fixes me. The problem is once you walk through the door and you activate it, you don't turn around and walk back out because you think you're done. It's not yeah. that way. You know, anybody that's listening that struggled with addiction, how many times have we said, I'm not going to do it today? And by five o'clock, you did it. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you tell yourself, I can't stop. Why can't I stop? Is because we've built, we've built that survival skill that says this is how we cope with the trauma. But the problem is those of us who are stuck on the other side of the doorway, if we haven't done the work to climb our way back through, we don't ever actually know why we're doing it. Yeah. We don't know that it's some kind of moment of impact that hasn't been treated, right? It's like you, um, I feel like it's, giving people energy drinks to lose weight or, or, <laughs> right. or prescribing them phenamine to lose weight, right? right? It's not really the solution, you know, or giving somebody blood pressure medication to lower their blood pressure if they're obese. The true symptom is their diet. Right. Treat the diet and then the blood pressure problem goes away. The yeah. cholesterol problem goes away. That's my dad changed his diet. He was on blood pressure and cholesterol medication for you know 20 years changed his diet started exercising he's lost 70 pounds and he's not on any medication anymore mm -hmm. why because he actually treated the true root problem well and that's one of the things you're really wanting to do with the uh, addiction recovery is pointing out the, the the way in which people approach it almost as if i know the argument of uh conventional medicine is that we're treating the symptoms not the problem that's right there, there's no way with you cannot treat it unless you go for the problem Nowadays, we have medical-assisted uh, medical treatment, Suboxone and Vivitrol, right? You right. can put somebody on a maintenance program, and I support those in certain facets, right? Sure. They should be used in cases where the person is a chronic relapser and could possibly kill themselves as a result of their addiction, right? Yeah, we right. should put them on something that can get them stable, maybe get them into therapy, get them into some counseling, get them a job, get them back with their family, and slowly we would taper them off. Um, but, but that's not for everybody, right? You, some of these people um, are, are not getting to the root. Yeah. They're, not, they're not seeking out to look for what the actual cause is that, that they're experiencing. And so trying to get people to understand that, um, you know, I, I, even addiction is a disease, right? I go to 12-step programs. Sure. Yeah, I, I like struggle reason. with that. Right? Yeah. And, and medically, science is now saying it's not a disease. Why? Because we're recognizing 
that it's a coping mechanism. It's a coping skill. Huh. It's a survivor skill that we're building early. And then because we don't treat the trauma, we will constantly repeat the behavior. Right. We will constantly repeat the behavior. As it, you treat the trauma, you will stop treating, you will stop treating in your brain the situation the same, and then you will divert from an unhealthy coping mechanism to a new one. And so it's just the cycle of addiction. Yeah. Not necessarily a disease, so to speak. Now I will, you know, like I say, I struggle with it now, um, more so understanding addiction at the level I've understood it and being a part of medical conferences and um, just following really good therapists. Um, But yeah, that's, you gotta treat the trauma. Now, do you think much like, uh, you know, this this has been something I've debated with other people that have gone through any sort of uh, recovery of, of any kind is, that the trauma that manifests in our brain at whatever point in our life, it could be a, you know, a series of repetitive stuff, or a, maybe for some it's a singular incident that, that carries over, that much like any other organ, uh, you know, the way our bodies grow and stuff, is when our brain hits that certain point with that thing, and it's almost as if it is, there's a point of maturation where it is released and when it's fully like activated that is the point we go into the the, utilizing that trauma or that part of our brain to cope with with that you know those receptors that are firing up there and and how we handle it just life and our view of the world moving forward yeah i'd say just picture a nascar track in your brain (laughs) and once you create it you don't even have to think about it yeah. All you need is a situation to approach that your brain says this is it, and the car just goes, and the more you do it, and the more you do it, the faster that car goes. Yeah. Faster that car goes, the harder it is to get in there and say, stop. Don't do that. Yeah. The momentum carries and carries and carries and carries, and that's just deeper rooting that instinctual track in your brain that this is your skill. Yeah. This is your coping mechanism. You will divert to this without ever thinking about it. Stopping that is, that's what the doorway is so tricky about. That's why I say you don't just turn around and walk back out because you think you're done. Once you've hardwired that track, you have to do a lot. Yeah. I say six things. Change the way you think, the way you talk, the way you walk, the places you go, the friends you have, and the things you do. Why do you say the way you walk? Because your habits. Okay. It's your aura. Everything starts with the thinking, right? Your thinking, your talking, your walking is a part of you. Everything has to change. So if you don't change everything, it doesn't work. So the, when I say walk, it's kind of like your habits. Okay. Yeah. I could, your aura of how you represent yourself. Do you think fellow addicts, we almost have a sixth sense for sim- people with similar trauma based for, upon your experiences throughout your life with addiction? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think it's just trauma bonding, right? We understand mm-hmm. each other. We operate on a similar wavelength. We think alike. I was uh, just on a date a couple of days ago and was talking to a person who, who's not somebody that struggles with addiction. And she was just like, you know, I'm just trying to understand. I said, you know, the one thing that I've learned is you will never understand. Right. <laughs> you can learn and gain knowledge about why certain things are happening with somebody that struggles with addiction. But if I sit down with somebody that has had an addiction or does have an addiction, it's like we're brother and sister. Yeah. We can tell each other anything because yeah. we get it. Yeah, true. You know, we get it. 
Sure. You know, whether it's somebody that experienced sexual abuse, somebody that came from an alcoholic or drug addict home with their families, or they've their own struggles that they had with mental health issues like I did, led them to a place where a substance became the coping mechanism. Yeah. And for some reason, we just get it. And oftentimes, a lot of us check almost all the boxes, mm -hmm. I find. Um, you know, I it was in interesting recently for me attempting a Zoom session. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up talking with a gentleman afterwards, and it was like similar traumas. And he's like, you had something of sexual abuse in, in your background too, didn't you? And he's like, would, you know, would you mind hanging on and we'll just go one-on-one? -on -one? And, and it's just like, how through what I shared in this first time did he sniff that out? Yeah. Well, I could give you a good one. 78% of youth who drink, smoke, or use drugs before the age of 14 have been sexually abused. No shit. So, 78%? Yeah, so now watch this. Now go back to middle school and think about every kid that was already using drugs and drinking. Yeah, or sexually active at that point. Right, so we would normally, our parents would normally say those are bad kids, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, there's an 80% chance that they were being sexually abused at home. So now are yeah. they bad kids? Right. Or did we just completely misunderstand what was actually happening and why? Yeah, you know, like so 15 people that just popped up in my head right now. Right, not even and the chances, 80%. It's so when I when I'm talking with somebody and I'm dissecting their story and I know that they've had addiction issues, I will always get to a point where I say, when did you start? Yeah. If they tell me 13, if they tell me 12, if I hear under 12, I'll say, when were you sexually abused? Yeah. How old were you? And they will almost always say, how did you know that? I've just been to a lot of medical conferences <laughs> and learned all these really interesting statistics that have yeah. helped mold more passion and more empathy and more of who I am and why I love doing what I'm doing is because there was so many misunderstood kids. Yeah. You know, we as a society have failed many of these kids because we went to institutions, schools that had a black and white approach to people that followed the rules and didn't follow the rules. And I do believe that there should be consequences to rules. But now when we start to understand behavior and we say, okay, people behave a way because of their experiences and the things that they were taught at home. When they misbehave at school, what's going on? Yeah. Instead of kicking them out, we should be dissecting them and putting things in place as safety nets to try and get them through and get them um, some kind of trust in institutions. Because once you miss the first one that I was talking about at home, yeah. if the second one fails, well, then now we're talking about an even greater chance that they're going to go to prison or end up in uh, substance abuse issues. Why? Because they're lacking trust now in institutions. Yep. They, ha they have lack of trust at home. Now they have a lack of trust in institutions because they kick them out. And then they will fail at the societal level when they either go through an institution that's uh, incarceration and they get out and society denies them a job. Yeah. Society denies them housing. Society, now they've got no trust anywhere. So yeah. where do they go? They're one of the 500,000 homeless people in, the, in California right now on the street. And they don't want to go into the homes that we're starting to build for them. Why? Because the first piece was missing, missing, the second piece was missing, and the third piece says, if you give me a house, here's how it's gonna work. As soon as I screw up, you're gonna you take it from me. me. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to have to go through the shame and the guilt that I've, I've experienced my entire life yep. one more time. Because I'll just make 40 grand here on the street, panhandling. I can shoot my dope now in San Francisco, not even a crime basically. 
which means I can survive. Yeah. This person is so sick that they believe that this is how they survive. Mm-hmm. They don't know any better. Uh, with, with no clear, even self-vision of any sort of purpose of servitude at no, all. No. And, and as a society, how many of us actually want to know their story? Yeah. Most don't. Give you five bucks and walk on. Yeah. If you don't give them five bucks, you know, they're filming you, making a joke of you. You know, spitting on you, throwing stuff at you, calling you a piece of shit, you know, all this other stuff. They, you know, that most people don't sit down. You know, I have this weird thing where when I see homeless people, and there's certain homeless people that I have no instinct to want to engage with, but there's the ones that I do see that, you know, I'll take them to lunch or go over there and I will always shake their hand. I don't care how dirty they are, and I'll ask what their name is. You know, you get on my phone right now, I have a Google Keep list. Of homeless people I've met. Which ones do you take out and shake hands and stuff like that? Um, just ones that I can tell have mental health issues, sure. probably going through trash cans, um, because we could go to downtown Fresno right now and we could see the ones that um, are a little more upright, mm-hmm. right. a little more mischievous, devious, uh, manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't need a blanket from me. They don't need uh, a pillow from me. Right. And they don't yeah. need me to take them to lunch. I can see by how they're dressed, how they're talking, who they're with. Sure. I will make an assumption from there which person that I want to try and help the most in a homeless situation. That's not to say I don't have empathy for them, mm-hmm. um, but I also don't want to put myself in danger. Right, right. You know, if I see a group of guys that look like they could be drug dealing um, or if the ones that may be beating up and robbing other homeless people, I don't want to become a victim of what they may be looking to do. So yes. typically I find ones that are by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, living by themselves in a tent somewhere and I'll approach them. And, you know, I'd like to, I, every time I meet one, I put their name on my phone. I just, because I want it to be meaningful. I want yeah. them to feel like, okay, um, he, he wanted to know me. That was weird. Yeah. You know, like this uh, African-American lady, she runs around uh, Fresno and she screams a lot. People don't talk to her and she pushes a shopping cart. Her name's Star. And when I asked her, she like looked at me like, why do you want to know my name? You know, it was just, I just <laughs> want you to know that I, I see you as a human being. Sure. Yeah. This is my name. What's your name? Yeah. You know, and then now if I ever see her, I can say her name and she'll be like, somebody knows me. Who's asking for, for my name? You know? And there's something about that, that recognition that, uh, y- you know, I know for me where it was uh, times when, when I was using, you know, alcohol uh, to an extreme and, and was just kind of figuring, hey, I'm checking out. And I'd have people where I'd be out and about in a moment and someone that I hadn't heard in a while, Jason, wow, good to see you. And, and you know, I hadn't thought of it until you're talking about that just now. I was like, hey, let me buy you a water. Oh, I'll have another beer. Nah, let's get you a water. Yeah, yeah. You know? how, how often does that happen, do you think, for the, for the homeless out there? Zero, zero point zero. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, I try to teach people that if you go up and you just give them $5, and you walk away, you're really just shaming them. Sure. Because you're you're confirming in their mind what they've what they've believed since they were a child that's led them to the street, right? I can't, I won't, I'm not able, I'm not lovable. You're better than me. I'm nobody. I'm such a nobody that you have to walk up and hand me five dollars. Because I can't earn that. I have no dignity for that. 
But if you walk up and you introduce yourself and you have a conversation, they feel like they just met somebody that empowered them. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was somebody that seemed like they really cared about my situation. Yeah. You know, for yeah. whatever reason, even if it's one minute, you know, 60 seconds of your time to just ask for their name, where they're from, what do they do? You know, just simple questions. Yeah. And say, hey, can I give you five bucks, five bucks for some food? I won't give them money. I personally don't because I don't want it to enable um, addiction behaviors. So, you know, um, I took a lady that was in Bakersfield. I I did a big conference there for a mental health addiction conference, opioid conference. And she was living in a tent and boy, she had like a whole setup. And (laughs) and I said, do you want to, do you want to go to, go to breakfast? Like it was like 11 o'clock and she was like, no. And I was like, "Are you? I'm not, I'm not going to do anything to you. You know, I'd like to <laughs> yeah. just take you, take you to breakfast." And, you know, she she had some major mental health issues in terms of schizophrenia, um, but I just let her talk, just let her do her thing. You know, we went in the restaurant, and uh, bought her bought her breakfast, and walked her back, gave her a hug. Her name was Mary. Yeah. And I went on my way. I don't know if she remembers me. I don't care. You know, it was a soul thing. You know, I just feel like that's that's what we should do. Well, you know, and you point out here what you're talking about um, mentorship, mm-hmm. and I I would really like you to kind of share a little bit of your relationship with uh, with Toby Wade, if you could, because yeah. it's a really interesting part of your journey. Which I, I was wondering if you actually if you remember that phrase too that when you first went into prison, the one on the wall, the one on the wall, of course, because when you when you said it. It, it moved me and I'm working on memorizing it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's be careful what you think. Your thoughts become your words. Careful what you say. Your words become your actions. Be careful what you do. Your actions become your habits. Be careful what you make a habit. Your habits become your character. And your character becomes your destiny. Wow. It's basically a, it's a blueprint yeah. for where you are in your life right now and why. It's not because anybody did anything to you. It's not because of a teacher. It's not because of a coach. It's not because of your family. It's absolutely with the way you started processing reality, yeah. speaking your reality, walking your reality until it became part of your, it became your reality really? and your reality is taking you where you're at right now. Yeah. 100%. I found it so important because I see and I have been there of being in that out of control position as uh, more of a passenger than a pilot in Mm. my life and my life's journey and destiny. And and, and some people would say that you would need to get out of the driver's seat, right? To to get your life back. And and there's some truth to that, right? There's surrender. Uh, Getting out of your own way. That's one that I really like. But at some point you have to drive. Right. To a degree. I I think so. Yeah. I mean, at at some point you have to drive and say, this is the direction I'm going to drive my car. Right. And then there's times when you surrender and yes. say, okay, I need to let go of the wheel for a little bit, figure out where I'm at. Now I'll grab the wheel now that I know what direction I am in and I'm going to go. So I, you know, I've, I've read that quote and that was like the beginning of shaping my, my new life. I started seeking that out. I had a spiritual experience on January 21st, 2007. Okay. Led me to Jesus Christ. I don't push my faith on people, but this is what brought me to change. A spiritual experience with Jesus Christ involved. I get arrested the very next day, January 22nd. 30 days later, sentenced to prison, four and a half years. I got to do two years on that. First night at Wasco State Prison, I read that quote. 
and I felt like, okay, this is just God's like lining all this stuff up for me. He's given me everything that I need to, to do this. Yeah. It's my choice. I take this or I don't. I took it and said, I'm going to do this. Surrendered my life and said, okay, what do you need from me? Like, I'm not even supposed to be alive. And that was when the four goals happened. I'm going to race my bicycle professionally. I'm going to go to the Olympics, start a nonprofit organization for kids, and I'm going to become a professional speaker. And it was that fast of clarity for you? Two weeks. Holy jeez. Two weeks. Now, the vision in its entirety developed over time. It's still developing over time. Right. You know, I didn't know. I just knew bike, Olympics, kids, story. I didn't know exactly what that looked like. Now, as I can get into my story, I can more definitively say, this is exactly what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, it was more bikes, Olympics, kids, story. Tell it. Yeah. I didn't know what was going to come of that. So along the way, in my spiritual journey, I went from Wasco State Prison to Tehachapi, Tehachapi to Avenal. Avenal is where I met Toby Wade. Okay. And I just remember every morning, this black dude sitting down on the t on the tables, or the t they were like these, I don't know what you would call them. They're not chairs. They're just sitting down. They got rows of them, TVs. He would sit down, and he'd have his headphones on like we do. And he'd be reading the Bible, and he would just be like dancing around, moving, and reading the Bible every day. And so at that time, I was very into the Bible and trying to understand it, which if you've never read the Bible, or even if you've tried to read the Bible, even if you go to church, the Bible is like hieroglyphics <laughs> for most people because it's so complex. There's yeah. just so many layers to the Bible that you have to understand, whether it's uh, historical, spiritual, or the literal context. Um, and then understanding the Jewish religion is extremely important because the Old Testament, Testament is based on the Jewish religion. So the Torah is involved. So there's just all this stuff. And I don't know what the heck is going on other than I'm reading. Mm -hmm. I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. I have these questions. I see this guy. I started asking him questions. Hey, like I got this question and he would like take his headphone off and he'd look up at me and I'd ask him a question. He would tell me the answer and I would go back and anybody that knows me knows that like I have a lot of questions <laughs> and I will question the answers that are given to me. Did he seem kind of annoyed or was he like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Because, <laughs> because he would get... <laughs> it's like, man, it's get like, the oh, hell away from yeah, me. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And, and, and this was you know, almost a repeat of what my experience was in school. Like I had a sixth grade teacher that would send me to the office after four questions. He'd give me four questions a day. On the fifth one, if I asked a fifth one, he'd send me to the office. What? Out of his class. Because I had questions. Yeah. And I think a lot of these individuals thought that maybe he's just screwing around. Sure. But that's not how I am. Like I'm just, I want to know everything. So if I ask a question, it's because in my mind, I'm building a wheel. And if I'm missing a spoke, I have to go back. And even if I feel like, okay, this spoke length is not the correct length to make this wheel roll right, I'm going to go back and say, are you sure about that spoke length? Right. So I would do that to T. He'd give me an answer, and I'd come back, and I'd be like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm reading this over and over and over, and, and I'm plugging in the spoke length that you're giving me, and it just doesn't seem to be rolling straight to me. Mm. Are you sure? Yeah. And he'd be like, yes, youngster, I'm sure. <laughs> and I would go back and then I'd come back and I'd do it again. And like, he would take his headphones completely off and he would look up to me like, what is your deal? <laughs> and I'd just be like, man, I'm just not, sh fine, I'll go back. And then it was like, hey, can I just study with you? No, I study alone. 
And why was that rejection? Um, probably because he was African American and I was white. There was going to be some stuff that comes with. It wasn't accepted there. It wasn't accepted, yeah. and I don't think he wanted uh, knowing T. He knew what was going to happen. He'd been down for fourteen years at that time. Oh shit! So he knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a white kid hanging out with a black dude. The whites are going to come after him. You know, it, the blacks don't care. Right. They want to go home. Yeah. They're not interested in prison politics. Yeah. To a good degree, at least where I was at, right? So. I just kept asking him. And then eventually it was the me waking up on my bunk. I was taking a nap and then I just, he's tapping on my, my, my desk and I opened my eyes and it was tea. And, and I said, what do you want? He said, let's go. And I said, what are we doing? He said, we're studying. And I okay. said, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, let's go. And he goes, you better be serious. We're going to do this every day for a long time. And I said, all right, let's go. And I was ready. We studied for four to six hours every day. Mm-hmm. Every dad. His his dad was a preacher. His brother was a preacher. Mom was in the church. Family comes from a history of ministers. The guy knew the Bible better than anybody I've ever met. He just knew everything about it. And so I read it out loud to him at least once, start to finish. Mm-hmm. And we studied in the Greek. We studied in the Hebrew. We studied the dates, the kingdoms, the Jewish order. So I knew exactly what the Bible was saying for most of the part after you know spending 13 months yeah. with him, you know, four to six hours a day. And he, you know, you would think, oh, the guy was asking for packages and asking my parents to send him money sure. and never asked for a dollar once. So I have to ask too, did you catch any flack? Were you guys hanging out? No, I actually didn't. Um, when I got there, so at least not to my face. Mm-hmm. And so there were some things that I think worked out in my favor. We were switched from Tehachapi State Prison, and when I got there, I, w- I struggled in the beginning, and I got in a few fights, several mm-hmm. fights. And um, I'm not a very confrontational person, but I think just being at such a good athlete, you know, fighting was just something that was just a natural order of yeah. athletics, right? And so I got involved in these fights, and one of them was a two-on-one, and I just smashed both the dudes. And it started to build a name for, like, yeah, just leave him alone. Got a reputation, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, he's got hands. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I might yeah. be a little guy, but when you start seeing my hands fly, like, okay, leave him alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We don't, we'll go find somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was on a lower level yard. If I was on a level four, I was on a level three yard. There's no winning. You yeah. lose. Yeah. They would have found a way to make me the loser. And I'm grateful I wasn't there. But so when I changed prisons, there were certain individuals that floated with me that knew about stuff. Right. But I switched from running with the wood pile attachable to running with the Christian car when I got to Avenal. And I felt like moving prisons was was a blessing for me because I got a chance to start over. Right. I was developing this Christian thing. I needed to separate myself from the people that I had meshed with in the beginning of Tehachapi, which, you know, uh, there's like a rule in prison. You give a person a soup once you make a friend for life. Once you invite a man, you can't really relinquish it kick them out yeah right so if i change prisons i now have an opportunity to start over and be selective about who i who i you know make kin and so yeah so i got in these fights and then i moved prisons and when i started hanging out with t um they actually approached him and not me and because he was a lifer he carried weight because he was a lifer and they said look like um we're going to let this happen, but if anything out of the ordinary happens with his behavior, he's done. We're going to take care of him. 
Um, but I also think because, you know, like one time when this guy came up to me and he's like, Hey bro, man, like I heard about you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And this has been months yeah. into being at Avenal. He's like, he's like, bro, I heard about that two on one attached to state prison. And it was just like, you know, I think p- people were talking like, leave him alone. Let's see what he does. Mm-hmm. We talked to T, um, and I was able to do it. And they said, if he ever comes back, you know, it'll be a problem. Wow. Because I crossed those racial lines. Right. Um, you know, they were actually really cool with me. Like they found out I could play basketball really well and I got to play in the league with the blacks, mm-hmm. which was cool, you know, because they, a lot of that has to do with, especially in sports, we know that African-Americans can be very good at sports, right? And so sure. you don't go out there and humiliate our race, right. which sounds so stupid. Yeah, and we're but talking with the context of the prison confines. Prison, right, yeah. right, right. We're talking in prison. Um, and it goes both ways because I used to run 400-meter sprints training for the Olympics, and that's what I was telling people I'm doing in yeah. there, right? And I was be getting, getting real fast. Well, the cops started putting up these snack bags. We will with Mountain Dews and Snickers and corn nuts and all kinds of stuff in this bag. If you can beat this kid, anybody that can beat this kid has this. So you got people like lining up, lining up. And we're, the cops are basically racing me like I'm a, <laughs> like I'm a fucking horse, dude. Like, right, right. like I'm a racehorse. And now coming around town yeah. three is Hoffman. Yeah. Hoffman takes the lead by nose. <laughs> yes, yes. So this one African-American dude, he was way too old. He's like, I'm going to race him. I'm going to race him. And uh, this other African-American dude who ended up racing me was like, if you don't sit your black ass down right now (laughs) before you embarrass us, you're not going to race this kid in front of everybody and embarrass us. Right. And that was when I started to realize more of why some of this racial stuff existed was so much ego. Mm -hmm. You know, it couldn't just be a race for competition. Yeah. You know, and to say, good job, you know, like you're better than me today or you're the better athlete today. You know, it's legit. You can't make us look bad. And I got lucky because, I, like I said, I, I played basketball well and they let me play basketball with um, with African-Americans. And uh, I ran against, you know, a lot of them, you know, through the little 400 meter sprints and stuff. So and I just think a lot of that, too, was just divine placement. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting. I remember you speaking about athleticism as uh, as a youth but that even being the first catalyst of rebellion for you as well because you excelled uh, so much in athleticism but yet you had a, a sense of wanting to feel normal yes yes and there was it that's such a unique component because um, there was like the the rebellious side I think really was the root of not having my dad there in full support the way I wanted okay so it's like who cares sure I'll just do whatever I want I'll be so good I won't show up to practice. I'll be so good that I won't try. I'll be so good that um, my effort level will be lower, but when the game hits, I'm still going to beat you. Yeah. You know, because I'm that much better. And then it was like, I don't even want this. I don't even want to be good. I don't want people to talk to me. I don't want people to think I'm special because I don't feel special. You know, at, at at the end of the day, in my heart, I didn't feel special on the cover of a magazine, leading the points, sponsored by companies that weren't sponsoring amateurs, and I still didn't feel like I was great, which is a dilemma, you know, because I had everything that you would need to be successful, but I didn't have the mental capacity to be able to support the talent at that time, which was a shame. Yeah, well, and that ability to, um, you know, emotionally self-regulate. 
Right. Um, I found that for me because I, I uh, you know, I did the best I could to excel, uh, especially at basketball and track and field when I was in high school. And uh, that inability, because that was a period where my father was at the peak of his addiction, and I had yet to start to experiment experiment with anything really till I hit 22, which was odd Late. That, that it matured for that. But I did have some sexual trauma too, and that stuff was being acted out at that point. And so I, I just had no emotional ability to even think I was worth a shit to try as hard. Once somebody, man, you were, that was a good game. And it's like, okay, I've had my good game. I'm done. I got my recognition. I yeah. have no, no emotional maturity to even attempt to, to string anything together. And we're supposed to learn that from our parents. Right. We're supposed to emotionally learn how to regulate our lives. We're supposed to learn how to regulate our emotions through our parents. Society can come in and help us, but we typically find that from our parents. They give us the emotional wisdom, the emotional experience, and um, the empowerment to take an emotion, feel it, process it, and move from it without self-destructing. And that doesn't place blame in the parents that don't. It just means that when we didn't get that support, we now have to consciously make a, a, a concerted effort towards fixing what is broken right. emotionally. That's fucking hard. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, Mikey, I, you know, I don't know about you. I just, I think all that stuff is a part of our journey of the colorful individuals that we are. And we all just have a different, uh, different spectrum of colors in the palette for sure. I wouldn't yeah. change anything. No? No, except for the robbery. Yeah. That's it. I wouldn't change anything else. And right after that, you knew that was God talking to you like you knew. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I Yeah, this is, I, this is the worst yeah. thing I could have ever done in my life. Don't How did ever. you feel during it? During the did, Was that going through your mind like in the house? Or were you just fiending so much that, hey, I needed to get stuff that I could that I could sell and, and get more product or what? I mean, I would look at it the same way I would a sports game, which might sound sick in the head, but no, it's, your adrenaline's flowing. You don't realize what's going on. Yeah. You're, after you're, yeah. After mm -hmm. you're done, you've processed the whole thing. You know, like I don't, when I tell the story, I walk people through the robbery. Like when I'm in a school, I, talk, I take them through the back gate, through the garage, into the kitchen, holding her at gunpoint Walking down the hallway, seeing the family pictures on both sides of the wall, making a left at the end of the hallway, seeing the uh, closet with the deadbolt locks on it, opening the deadbolt locks, the Oxycontin that had 15 or 14 liquid bottles in it was up in the upright on the, ca on the counter, 450, 40 milligram Oxycontins. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? So I take them through like th yeah. the experience, but as I was going through it, there was mm -hmm. no really thought. It was like a sports game. You're, sure. you're blacked out in the moment just kind of reacting and it was because the withdrawals yeah it wasn't because i wanted to take somebody for their stuff mm -hmm. it wasn't because somebody was doing well it was because if i don't get these pills i'm going to be dope sick right, right. and i don't want to be dope sick because that hurts and i have to experience the physical withdrawal and i have to experience all those emotions that started when i was 12 years old that made me hate who i am only when I experience them coming down from dope, it's like times a million. So I really hate myself, you know? So if I could just get yeah. these pills, it'll be over with. Everything will be fine. It'll be over with. Yeah. 
Whew, that's crazy. I didn't realize it. And it, and what the fuck was the lady doing with that much in her home? That was my next question, too. Why did she have so many? We didn't even get her on a good day, I don't think. No shit. Her, both her sons were stealing them from her originally. And they, he, they sold them to us for $5 a pill. They went for $40 on the street. The, guy, the kid, he was a friend of ours. He originally said, my mom's got thousands of these pills at home. We were buying them for six months. Never ran out. I don't know how many she had, but she finally caught him. She caught him. She locked him up. When she locked him up, we had to go to the street. When we were to the street, that was when we couldn't find him. Right. Um, but, you know, back then, when we, after the robbery and we got out and I relapsed, I got involved with some people that most of them went to federal prison. Um, the doctors were being paid off, and it wasn't uh, un uncommon for you know, f somebody that was on the team to go in there and come out with 320 Oxycontins, 500 Vicodin, 100 and some odd Xanax. Damn. Holy shit. And all you had to do was hand the doctor $300? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know. It's but you got a whole line of people handing that doctor $300 in cash. Yeah. You know, he's probably making 10, 15 grand a day. Yeah. Pharmacies are like, damn, a lot of these motherfuckers are in pain. But, <laughs> but this is 2003. Right. 2004, 2006. The, the opioid epidemic wasn't even recognized until 2009 and no. 10. Right, right, right. I, I mean, we, I saw it. Sure. My school you district. Lived I lived it. My school district, of all people know, my city knew. We had a freaking thing called the Oxycontin Task Force that operated specifically in Clovis. The nice, quote, 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 area. We had a task force that was backed by the feds using the Clovis Police Department and some of the other magic officers, which is like a multi-agency mm -hmm. gang task force that's around Fresno County that were f basically investigating a bunch of upper middle class white kids from Clovis that were working with doctors and working on the west side from people that were actually, um, you know, getting into the doctors. And then the scripts were kind of being filtered down to a team and then dispersed in Clovis. That's insane. Yeah. Have you talked to the mom since all of that never, happened? Never, no. never. You know what? I feel like I still, I've been saying it for 10 years and it still hasn't happened, but it's going to at some point, you know, maybe I'm going to get a chance to speak to her. Right. Sure. And hug her. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and tell her that I'm really doing the best I can to try and stop somebody from going down the same path and committing the same act as I did for, for the pills. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it was just not, I'm not that person. Yeah. You know, if, I mean, people say I'm blasted with tattoos. Well, you look uh, at them, they're all angels. Dude, trust me, I get the same. I get followed by security when I go into Target every time. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like, but look, at, I got crosses, you know, Bible verses, all that. Too, yeah, it's but, not, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a hardened criminal. Yeah. It's not me. Yeah. You know, I don't, that's why after that robbery, I said, I'll never do it ever again. Yeah. And I lost a big piece of myself in terms of confidence because of that. There was so much shame and so much guilt for me doing that. You know, I lost a lot of my inner confidence because I started to believe that I was just a piece of shit. Yeah. You know, because that's what kind of person, so to speak, would do something like that. And so I just... And, and then I would just get in situations with people that would reconfirm that story. Yeah. And the more people in situations and situations and outcomes that reconfirm that story that I was telling myself, the more it just became who I was. Yeah. I, and I, I think, you know, there's many people that maybe have process, gone through the process of recovery and I can raise my hand to um, mirroring all those self 
thoughts and emotions to just thinking this is what I am, this is who I am, and there's no point in trying to get any kind of help. Yeah. Luckily, I had stuff occur that did. It's a um, dangerous place to be. Oh, it's terrible. When you accept a story that you've created on a false reality and then let society also back that story and just say, you know what, I'll just be what society thinks I am. Yeah. Or even worse when it's those that are your, your, that are constantly in your environment. Mm-hmm. That's, that I would just consider that society. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I, you know, it's those days of, um, you know, at the time it was, I can get up, I can go down, and I can manage these, uh, these, this, this uh, group of employees and oversee six radio stations, or I could just die. Either way. Yeah. Right. I'm going to do one or the other today. I'm glad you did the other one. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Well, that's in, that, that was, was the mentality that, that I think people don't understand about addiction is that you get to that point where you, you go from all these multiple choices of life to they become almost too faceted to almost a singular mindset. Yeah, but don't fool yourself. That's life. Sure. A lot of people have settled in their jobs, in their careers, in their marriages because of the opinion that society has about who they should be and what they're capable of doing. And I just got to a point where it was like, nope, this is what I'm going to do. I don't care. I'm not going to be this person for you. I'm going to be the person that I knew I was when I was younger, but I didn't want to be that person because I didn't want the responsibility. I didn't want the attention. Now that I know how to manage it, I want it. Mm -hmm. Now I know that the other alternative is death. I want it. Now that I know that the alternative is sadness, discontent, anxiety, depression, I want what I have now and I'll go get it. And now that I'm getting it, I, I, I have to laugh. He's all about the money. He's got diamond rings. He drives a nice car. He's not about recovery. And it's like, actually, you know nothing about me. Right. Actually, there are things that I do that I don't tell people about for people that help, to help people. Yeah. I don't need to promote everything that I do. Right. You know, I have worked hard to get here. And as a result of my hard work, I'm being rewarded for it. Now what I do with the reward, I'm trying to build a treatment center. I'm out speaking. I'm paid well to speak. And I'm paid well to speak to put money in the bank so I can build a treatment center. Mm. Because that's my retirement. Yeah. I'm going to retire helping people turn their life around. Right now, I'm on the road 220 days, 250 days a year. I'm sacrificing what most people would never be willing to sacrifice. Yeah. Three hours of sleep, four hours of sleep. 180 airplane rides a year. You did over 200, it's like 210 dates last year, right? Yeah. Bro, 180 flights. Holy shit. Getting anxiety just thinking about it. Yeah, I have have over a half a million miles saved up, and I gave 200,000 last year to my video guy. You know, I would almost have a million air miles saved up in three years. The only other people I've ever known is having been around rock stars during major tours and professional wrestlers that I have worked with that have logged that kind of mileage. Right. And dates. And I I don't ever talk to anybody that travels like I do and say they love it. I was depressed when COVID hit. Oh, I'm Not about the money. About being on the road. Yeah. Like, this is my purpose. Yeah. What the hell am I going to do? Yeah. Like, you just... My whole life just got taken from me. The money came with what I love to do. So it was more or less, I, I need to speak. I want to speak. And you don't owe anyone an apology for that. No, I don't. And yeah. I love that. And I, you know what? And that's something that I've had to wor- that, that I'm trying to work on to accept. Because mm-hmm. I get a lot of guilt trips for any changes that I made or advancements. Mm-hmm. 
And it's almost a crab in the barrel mentality. It's exactly what it is. And I don't associate with those people. And I keep my circle really tight. Um, very few people come to my home for reasons. Sure. Because I have learned when people come to my house, they now have an opportunity when they decide that they don't want to be on my team anymore to twist and contort what goes on at my house in terms of my goals and my vision boards and what I do and what sure. I'm about mm -hmm. to go and then make it benefit for them. A right. conversation with other people. Oh, well, he does this and he does that. And the only reason they're saying that is because they want to be a part of a conversation. Mm -hmm. right. I can't associate with people that are talking about other people in negative, negative. It stops me from where I'm going. If I want to talk about somebody, it's going to be something I could say to their face. And it's going to be some kind of acceptance or, you know, approval or, you know, do this or do that. I'm proud of them or this because that's where I'm at. Yeah. My circle has to be that way. If it's not get out go hang out with them because where i'm going there's going to be very little oxygen on that mountain when i start climbing and i can't have people talking and consuming oxygen that's going to slow us down you know we need to move yeah. mm -hmm. so you're either moving with me or you can go back and stay with everybody else yeah nothing against you go do that you know what i mean but you're not going to eat at my table period uh I want, because this is something I've been, I thought about that you did. And for me, the, the one thing I'm working on to improve and master is making my bed. For you, it was brushing your teeth. Yeah, and making my bed. Oh, that's right. That yeah. was included in there. Yeah. It's, uh, and then, you know, it's funny, my boy Matt this year, I, I'm working on writing a book called The First 90. All and right. I think it's going to be a game changer for the recovery space because we have so much literature for NA and AA that's like the spiritual component, but we don't have the realistic, real life devotional. Yeah. That's built on success principles. And I'm basically lining out 90 days of this is how you transform your life in 90 days to go off and not only be sober, but do whatever it is that you're dreaming about. And it's set up into three stages the first three state uh first 30 days second 30 days last 30 days um and one of them i sent him an uh an excerpt from the habits the habits day and basically you need to remove one habit of one negative habit and add in one positive habit and he was like you know Hoff, i i take took one out and i'm adding in making making the bed and it's so critical because I feel like if you can wake up and you can organize the space in which you spend most of your life when you t total up the time or a big part of your life, when you can take care of that, you can take care of many other things. It's just transferring, making my bed and seeing how making my bed is a reflection of how I organize my entire life. And if I can take care of my bed space, then when I get to the office or the studio, I can then treat my office and studio with the same care that I would treat my bed. After you master that, well, then you go out and you say, well, when I'm walking by a shopping cart or when I'm coming out of the shopping uh, store, I'm going to put my cart in the corral. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or, you know, like one of my favorite guys that I would consider a mentor but not personally, Andy Frisella, who has the uh, MFCEO project uh, podcast, and now um, he has another project of Real, Real AF. But his big thing is... There's not a self-made millionaire in the world that leaves piss droplets on the toilet. Huh. Because people that are self-made recognize that how you do one thing is how you do everything. And if you can't wipe the piss off a toilet seat, 
then you're not worthy of going from zero to a million. Mikey, chime in here on this because we've had talks, uh, Mikey and I have, um, Tony, about certain people that have been in our world that are, you know, heads of industry or something like that, and, and how most people go, oh, I want that, I want to be that guy, and they don't even have the capacity. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Like, do you have the capacity for that? You know? and, and I've raised the hand about myself. I am not at a point that if all of a sudden I, somebody bought me that magic lotto ticket or whatever it is, that there is no way that I could all of a sudden take that money and go and ultimately start a project. Because as you put it, not saying that it's, this is one of my habits, but I don't wipe the piss off the toilet. Yeah. Well, not, that's not and at that's, this point. And it's not the capacity. It's you're not ready yet. That's why most people that win the lottery go broke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because they can't manage $100. Mm-hmm. How, do you handle, how do you manage $150 million when you already think because you have 150 that you can do all this stuff? Right. If you don't see that you're broke at $150 million, you're never going to be able to manage it. Not mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I have gone from different levels of broke. But regardless, I've stayed broke. Mm-hmm. Despite the car, I'm still broke. Right. Despite my fashion, you know, taste, I'm still broke. And I operate on a scale of brokenness because I've learned to manage the little. And as I grow, the brokenness stays the same because I have to stay within a league of operation or then I start to go outside my means. Yeah. As soon as I go outside my means, then I start losing track of what's going on. And I think that what, um, what has helped me is this micro process. Sure. Brushing my teeth making my bed, organizing my stuff. I'm graduating from one task to the next. And this is why I don't want business partners to come in and say, well, we'll give you a million dollars to help you start your treatment center. I don't want that because I need to be able to save and manage the money to get there. So I know that when I get there, I can now manage the business. All you, 100%. I'll bring people in. No, yeah, but without the business. Without the the partners, because one, I believe I can do it. Yeah. Two, I want to know that when I birth my treatment center, it's my baby. Right. If I don't take care of it because my hands built it, it crumbles. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let anything I build crumble. You know what I mean? We might walk away from something and say, okay, this project isn't successful. Let's start this project like any other entrepreneur would do. But I'm not going to let it fail because I don't have the responsibility. I don't have the leadership. I don't have the experience to be there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so we, th- we think that when somebody says, hey, I want that, they don't want, they want the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want the status. Sure. Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, if, I mean, uh, take just uh, Joe Exotic, for example, right? Like that was, <laughs> you could totally tell in Tiger King, that dude had an obsession with fame. Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah. That I mean, some banana shit, man. But, but I also. But that's a lot of people. I also think the same thing about Dr. Fauci. Sure. I think that dude's on the biggest ego trip ever. He loves that he gets to stand on a podium every day right now and speak his truth, if that's what we can call it, every single day. And the media is at his becking and calling. And what do we do? And Dr. Fauci's the man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, people take that and they want that. You don't want the 70-hour work week. You don't want the failure. You don't want people casting stones at you and judging you for somebody that you aren't. You don't want that. And you're not willing for, to work through that to get to that place. Most people aren't. Yeah. yeah. 
Very true. I feel like I have a leg up on you, Jason, because I do wipe the pee off the seat. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say I didn't. I'm just, I'm just saying, <laughs> metaphorically, yeah. I'm not wiping the piss off the seat at this point, you know, yeah. and, and with the seats, desire baby. of it, because that that was something that stood out to me as an inspirational way of to think about life, um, because I was total OCD prior to any sort of uh, dependency. And then a point uh, I fell off. It's almost like my OCD flipped to being uh, obsessed with everything being messy and I will control and handle nothing. And then that's when... So you were OCD previously? Previously. It, while in addiction? Prior. It was almost prior. So teenage years. Uh, and then when I hit it, it was, it was about 21, 22, somewhere in between that age when I started to actually drink. I mean, I never went to parties in high school or any of that stuff. Um, but then once I, some of those traumas really took a stronghold and I had failed relationship after failed relationship after failed relationship, uh, complete discomfort going out. And then, a, you know, but he's like, here, have a beer. Well, then all of a sudden I could talk to girls, mm -hmm. you know, cause I was completely rejected. That's why I related to your story about the girl wanting the weed and okay, I'll find you some, here's yeah. that approval. Um, and and it was once that kind of started, I started giving a shit less and less about how my life was organized. Yeah. And then it was just chaos. And then I became a total passenger. Yeah. That, that went on, Jesus, and uh, da, 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 what would that be? 18 years? How much sobriety do you have now? Uh, Are you sober now? Is that the deal? Yeah, I'm sober now. Uh, I was near two years continuous and my best friend's mom passed away suddenly. I mean, very healthy lady and developed sepsis and was gone within four hours. And she was, I'd known her since I was three and I had fallen off. That was between Christmas and Thanksgiving last year. And now you're back on the horse. Now I'm back on the horse. Yeah, you gotta, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a process. Yeah. You know, to organizing things. And this is why I think that devotional that I'm writing is gonna be so effective because it goes over so many different qualities. Six, six different, uh, five different qualities, six times each phase, whether it's commitment, discipline, forgiveness, understanding self-deception, prayer, um, habits, you know, it's all of these different aspects where it can take somebody in your situation and you can start bringing to light these things without going to a meeting and having all of this other stuff that's extremely important for recovery, yes. but doesn't have much to do with managing your life. You know, you could say that, of course, the 12-step program has to do with managing your life, and it does, but it's not in the practical way that I'm building this devotional. It's to say, oh, okay, you know, I'll start doing this, and then I'll start adding that, and I'll start thinking about this and becoming more consciously aware of these qualities that over time, when you can put them all together in this package, leads you to a place where continuous sobriety is not even, a, it's an afterthought. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that you don't go to meetings. I still go to meetings, especially if I need them. If I need them, I'll go seven days a week, two times a day if I'm, if I'm able, mm. you know, because I know that that's where the solution and that's where my people are. Yes. You know, but outside of those meetings, what do you do? They don't teach you that in there. No. And no. that's what that's, you know, it's a process, yeah. you know, just like him, you know, working on, on his bed. Sure. I don't know how many years, how many years you got? Four. Four. What? You know? Awesome. Congrats. Yeah. And it's like, I remember this guy at a camp out when he was just trying to get things going, you know? And so it's like, you know, he's got four years and now he's, you know, slowly trying to develop some, some new habits. And, you know, I think that those new habits will help him find his career. 
you know, because once you get sober, what do you do with it? <laughs> That's the, that, yeah, because it fills a lot of gaps in boredom. It does. And, and, and you know, and, and if you get sober and there's nothing after it, you find yourself maybe going back. Or if you're not treating the trauma all the way, you know, if, you know, relapse is a great teacher. Why was that death so triggering for you? You know, is there a death in your in your childhood that you missed that caused a lot of problems yeah. that you didn't think t- and that you're tr- it triggered a very yeah. similar experience for your brain? So your coping mechanism went straight to changing the way you feel. Where moving forward, you may recognize as soon as somebody dies that there's a certain thing you have to do to cope. You know, whether it's stay at somebody's house, pick up the phone, go to meetings, because you have to create that new track. Yeah, You've already got the old one. You know, and so it's the process. Yeah, that failure I would I would definitely come into uh, when I was a kid. Uh, one of the the first girl I kissed on the playground when you do the you thing, she died of diabetes, and I never oh, felt man. so alone. Uh, it was fourth grade, fifth grade, um, and I just felt so alone. And remember crying. And when I told this to a therapist, he said it's very weird for someone your age to go, "Why her? Why her? And why not me?" Mm-hmm. He goes, there was something you felt about that. I was like, because we jump rope together. We did double Dutch. You know, she didn't think my Motley Crue t-shirt was stupid. And, is, your mom you know. an, is your mom an addiction? Is no, my, so she, my father. So she was the codependent. Yeah. Well, that's probably where you learned it from. Yeah. Your mom would probably say, why not me instead of your dad? Probably. I'm sure. She would have took that bullet for him, I would imagine. Oh, she and she did over the years, man. She Well, and you learned that, it. right? You watched that. Oh, yeah. So you learned her behavior. Even though you're in fourth grade, you're still you're, you're putting out her behavior that you're learning at home. Sure. And so you immediately attach yourself with her. When she leaves, you're, you're thinking, why, why not me? Yeah. Because you've seen how your mom would sacrifice herself for your dad in his situation, right? And everyone. I mean, my mom was just that lady. Yeah. And never expected a thank you. You're amazing. You're awesome. You're the best. Just did it because that's what she does. Total learned behavior. Survival yeah. instincts. Oh, shit. Yeah. When did we end up breaking me down so much here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, the, the purpose, too, of wanting to bring up the uh, brushing your teeth was that this was something you were developing in prison, if I'm correct. And this was all with the intent. You brushing your teeth was your first step in training for the Olympics. 100%. And it's still... Something that now, you know, this year I, I bought Invisalign, bleaching my teeth. I'm brushing them probably four times a day now because, you know, I'm just trying to take that much more care of my teeth. It's still something that started with just brushing them. Now it's like trying to get them straight. Now trying to get them nicer looking because it, these are all just parts of how I take care of myself and how right. I take care of one thing is how I take care of everything. And I just feel like we have to start small. Sure. We have to start small. If you're listening and you don't have your kids, how do you get your kids back? Right. You don't focus on getting your kids back. You focus on setting the alarm at 8 o'clock in the morning every day and getting up when it goes off. Mm. Then make your bed. Then go to your next obligation and just do that. Over time, when you, make your, when you hit all these little marks, you show up to a certain date and you get your kids back. Right. But if you focus on the date when your kids are going to come back, well, now you're looking down, you're looking miles down the road and you can't see. You know it's there, but you can't see. And you're like, well, how am I going to get there? That's scary. When realistically, you just have to put one foot in front of the other. You know, we do that. I just started playing golf. I don't get to the tee or I don't get to the, to the hole on the first, on the first hit, on the first drive. 
Sometimes it takes me several times, and I got to focus on where the ball is at right now, mm-hmm. right. and where I can hit the ball next. And trust me, I don't hit it straight every time, which means you're not going to be perfect. But you can play the ball where it lies, and eventually you'll find yourself on the green if you just keep swinging the club. And that's what brushing your teeth, making your bed, organizing your stuff, the micro process, what I call it, is all about. It was preparing me for managing one small thing to the next to the next. And over time, these opportunities got bigger. And I was prepared. Just like I say, when I get to the treatment center, Mm -hmm. I will be prepared to start the treatment center with no doubt. Mm -hmm. Will there be challenges? Of course. Sure. But I have managed everything up to that point to say, okay, treatment center time. And keeping your composure up to those challenges too. Like, so when you got out, busted your knee, you still continue to brush your teeth. Yep. Make your bed. Yep. And then keep pursuing it. Now, I'll, I'll give you a, a great example because I'm not superhuman. Mm-hmm. COVID knocked me out. Yeah. yeah. And it has caused a lot of people to relapse. It didn't cause me to relapse, but it knocked me out. Mm-hmm. It fucking knocked me on my ass. We sleep until 1.30. Mm-hmm. I got nothing to do. Yeah. Money in the bank. Yeah. I'll get through this, but I don't have my job. Yeah. I don't have what I love. Your purpose. My purpose. I haven't slept till 1.30 probably since 2008 when I was learning how to get up in the morning and not do that. Yeah. Has and it so, gotten better at Oh, all? yeah, yeah. Okay, but, yeah, so, yeah. So three weeks go by, mm-hmm. and I'm sleeping, and I'm sleeping, and I got nothing to do with my days. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have any structure, and I just said, you know what? Fuck it. Enough is enough. I can't do this. This is, this is just going to eat me alive i'm gonna go back to the old me said i know what to do this is exactly what i did in prison i started writing my days out 8 30 get up 8 30 to 9 30 breakfast and emails 9 30 to 12 work on my book eat lunch go to a meeting at 12 if i want at 1 30 this guy will tell you every day 1 30 monday wednesday and friday i'm at the stadium running stairs we added Tuesdays and Thursdays, nine o'clock. We play golf. I have something to do almost every hour of the day mm-hmm. because if I don't, I'm going to wallow Yeah. in self-pity, in fear, in anxiety, discontent. And these emotions, they consume the fuck out of people. Yeah. And I can't do that, man. Like not anymore. That's not who I am anymore. So it's like, I'm going to structure my days. And you might say, well, what does golf have to do with progress? Let me tell you something. I got nothing to do and I got enough money in the bank to ride this out for a while. And then that's not in a bragging fashion. So right. I could just put my feet up and fucking watch Netflix all day long, but I'm going to end up sleeping all day. And that means that when this thing's over, I'm going to come out a worse person than when I went in yeah. because before that I ran on four hours of sleep and I was traveling the country and I was helping people and I was building myself up and building this empire that I'm looking to build golf every day gets me out of bed keeps my body active. I'm learning something. So it's keeping my brain sharp. It's making me happy, competitive, and it's something to do for me. Yeah. You know, and now that I have something scheduled every part of my day, I just made a post about it last night. I feel like I'm the best that I've been in a long time Mm. with no job. (laughs) 
<laughs> Does it, Mikey, remind you of our hashtag KDD challenge that we took on? What, what it was was 30 days. It was, uh, you know, challenging yourself to something. Mine was uh, stripping away my tobacco habit, making sure I did 30 minutes of physical activity. There you go. You know, and so when you talk about that, you know, because I, I know that Mikey and I both struggle with anxieties. I with depression. I had it hit recently where it was like the whole weekend didn't want to get out of bed. Mm. And for the most part, didn't get out of bed. And um, it's almost like, it, it, you know, I've been having a lot of people to to be uh, open here, Tony, with some of the um, conversations about turning back to faith. And it's almost as if uh, now your story coming in here, we're able to talk, able to share. You obviously more of in a mentor role, like what Toby was to you sitting here and listening to you to help everybody else out there listening. But selfishly, and I've said this before, when I took this on, our, our motto was, if we can help one person, it'll all be worth it. Mm-hmm. And I told the, the owner of it, who I've told you Carlos Vieira's backstory, mm-hmm. uh, I said, and this is out of gratitude, I think the one person is me. I think the one person is me. Yeah, right. Because you know, why not? Why not? And, and whoever's listening out there, the one person them, the one person Mikey, mm-hmm. you know. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Yeah. And that's in the Bible. Which means that you by by you doing this, you you, you sometimes you probably walk out and you go fuck, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. We yeah. need to do that again. Yeah, right. It's because you're giving yourself. Somebody might say, "Well, all you're doing is talking." No, this is purposeful. No, absolutely. This is positive energy. The people that are receiving this are probably receiving the same thing you are, but you you're the one giving. So how is that possible? How do you receive in giving? It's a spiritual component. Yeah. That's what keeps us sober. You know, when you have this microphone and people depend on you to show up and turn that microphone on and bring people in here and continue to feed them, well, then now all of a sudden, if you don't get out of bed, somebody might relapse. If you don't show up at the studio, somebody might not want to go to work anymore because we're not going to have those episodes that they've been waiting for to come out. You know, it's a purpose greater than ourselves. Yeah. And that one person confirms when they message you, because they will if they haven't already, we're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear that. I was telling Jason, I've gotten, you know, DMs, random people, not random people, but people that I've seen out and about coming up to me. Hey dude, listen to the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Like it was good stuff. And it's just a good feeling. Like you're saying, like better to give, you know, yeah. than to receive. Yeah. Like it really is. It reminds me of the conversation we had with Scott Stapp, uh, that, that folks got a couple of weeks ago and his mm-hmm. new album was purpose for pain mm-hmm. and that everything in that lyrics was about it, that, that pain and the suffering that he went through, not only him as an individual, but putting his loved ones through and it now serving a purpose of servitude when he goes out there and does what he does to to the best of his ability while he can continue to do it. Yeah, um, 100%, you know. especially with somebody in your situation where you have sexual abuse because it's such yeah. a, a taboo topic and it's so yeah. stigmatized. Yeah. You know, to be able to talk about that, um, y- you are unlocking chains that people have had chained to them 40 years, yeah. 45, maybe 50, 55 years, depending on what your audience looks like, or maybe you're unlocking it for a 15-year-old, yeah. an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old that was not taught to talk about those things, that has been scared and shamed and guilt, felt guilty. And then all of a sudden they listen to this podcast and this guy, and a guy was sexually abused. Yeah. Or another guy, here's another guy sexually abused, and they're like, oh. It's emasculating, and it's definitely, or at least I let it be emasculating at one time. And then thus whenever there were situations of uh, uh, chaos within 
uh, a relationship and the individual wanting to have control knew that was a, a, a hot button, that's the hot button that they would use. Yeah, That's the area that they would install. That's what makes it sick. Yeah, and I, I ch- I'm a father of two kids, and boy, we do so much because the, the first point of it was pornography exposure at a very early age, and then it was an incident of uh, male on male. Mm-hmm. And so it was those kind of things. So we do everything, their mother and I, although divorce, everything to keep the kids from that. Yeah, you know? and just that vulnerability. So like I say, that vulnerability of being able to talk about that is that's that's your purpose for pain, right? Yeah. It's a, it all brings us full circle. When you're willing to be vulnerable, just say, this is who I am. And it's scary shit. But like you said, people are going to judge us anyway, so fuck it. They might as well judge you for shit that you love doing and being you. Yeah. Agreed. Than you trying to be somebody for them that you fucking hate. Man, I've done a lot of that. We all have. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. listening right now yeah. get made fun of, ridiculed, and go home at the end of the day and hate their job. And the only reason they did it is because when they were 18 or they went to college, their parents and society said, do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is how you make good money. But in their heart, they wanted to make books for children. Yeah. And they never did it. They wanted fulfillment. Yeah. Purpose. Yeah. Interesting to me, how did you... Take a look at when it when it was in your wanting to go to the Olympics that it didn't happen as an athlete but as a coach, and you found success in that way. Was there a point of where for you it was it was any sort of ah, I didn't achieve this or self doubt, but uh, I'll at least try in this way and hey, hopefully that's as rewarding. Or did you find it more as a mentor going in that it was more rewarding than you could have ever expected? Because, I mean, it, it is the freaking Olympics, and mm-hmm. it's such, uh, you know, it, it's not a small achievement by any means. It's, it's it doesn't matter how you get there. There's, um, there's a small percentage of athletes that make it and an even smaller percentage of coaches that make it because a lot of times coaches are coaching multiple athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I try to tell people that if you think coaching to the Olympics is easy, find an athlete that's good enough to trust you. Good point. You've got to work through politics. There was politics for me to get there. Politics. I had to secretly coach people that were part of the USA program. Um, I had to coach for free for a year to even get the recognition from an athlete that was never going to make the Olympics to even want to pay me. And then I had to make them good. Right. Then I had to get one good athlete and make them better for a great athlete to trust me. And then when I got a great athlete, I had to make that great athlete even greater mm-hmm. and the second they weren't great everybody judges you that you're not good yeah you know so i had to work through that but it was more rewarding to be there as a coach than i think I, it would have been as an athlete and do you find that that now reaffirms your faith and to go out and have your own recovery center and for you to be that coach mm-hmm. to lead that team absolutely absolutely it's um my entire life has been built on giving myself to make other other people better and I think that everybody's purpose is that. I think that how we do it is is what makes us unique, you know, whether it's through podcasting or energy drink companies or farms. Or, you know, we all have opportunities to build these things or be a part of things that make people better. You know, yeah. even if you're just a small-time employee, you're still an employee with more seniority than the one below you. Sure. You know, and if you can handle that job with the care that it should be cared for with – then you can mentor that person and that person could learn something from you that changes the rest of their life 
you know? And so for me, it was when, when I blew my knee out, obviously I was devastated. Um, but I'll be honest with you, not as devastated as COVID made me. Wow. Wow. No shit. Yep. Nope. Crazy, right? Yeah. Just thinking would, back on it right now. Nope. Yeah. Cause you would think, you know, outside perception now, ah, you know, going for a gold medal in the Olympics as an athlete, but then people don't realize and haven't seen in the 200 plus days a year that you travel all the faces of all those. Um, primarily, you're speaking to, t to high schoolers, correct? High schools and um, medical conferences, and medical, medical professionals. Conferences. And so then, the, uh, and all these faces, and if you're just touching one individual that maybe touches one individual and the, and the effect goes on and on and on at each of these locations you go. Right. Well, uh, and the other thing is, is this. Look, when I blew my knee out, I came back. You know, I was on a bike, a road bike, six days after my surgery. I came into my two-week observation to check my movement, and they expected, like, me to have 30 degrees movement, and I had 128 degrees. I was on a squat rack two weeks after my surgery, not doing a bunch of weight, but I was ready to handle it. Yeah. Like, this is just another obstacle. I could try, though. Yeah. I can't try. I can't get on a plane right now and go to New York and speak. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. People aren't calling me. People aren't saying, hey, let's do this. Now I'm getting some internet stuff now, which is giving me life again. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, but when, when I blew my knee out, I could at least exert myself and I could say I gave it my all. It didn't work out. Yeah. Where do I go from here? And uh, I have a podcast episode called Persistent Flexibility. Mm -hmm. And basically it's the idea that I have a vision and goal of how I'm going to be successful and reach this goal, but how I get there doesn't have to be the way I think it needs to be. So when we have the persistence to be successful, but with the flexibility or dynamic mindset, it means that when we reach an obstacle or hurdle in our quest to reach our goal, we're open to saying, I could go around that one. I don't have to actually jump that one. Yeah. I don't have to actually go to the Olympics as an athlete. I can make a hard left and I can get there as a coach. And then when I get there as a coach, it's like, well, shit. <laughs> now I know why I'm here as a coach. Mm -hmm. This is so much better because I'm on the beach, you know, eating real acai bowls sure. with <laughs> people speaking Portuguese and I don't speak Portuguese, but I'm happy. I'm not at the athlete village, not eating because I'm so nervous, not able to leave here because I'm confined to this one little area. I can go around and I can enjoy this experience. Soak it in. Soak it in. Mm -hmm. Then I can go to the event and then I can have the nerves. Then I can be coach and I can try and help somebody else achieve their goal. And I've learned it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Mm -hmm. The races that I won at the lower pro level, I remember the first race I won, it was like, shit, that was it. It felt better to train to me. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed exerting myself in training to the edge of like where I'm gonna die, right? Like pushing myself that hard. When I won a race, it was like, oh, I thought there would be more to this. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's why we see some of these successful athletes. They're not always happy because it's such a selfish quest oftentimes yeah. to pursue our own pleasure. But when you coach that person to it, it's you're giving yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're giving your time. You're giving your wisdom, your knowledge, your effort, your comfort, your care to that person. And to watch them do that, it makes me cry. To watch them do that, I'll scream, you know? And so that was, the Olympic experience was, experience was 
it was amazing. We would have got us. We would have got the bronze medal. She didn't listen to me. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it's a tough place to learn a lesson like that. Uh, I told her to pick one lane outside the American Girl, wherever she went. I said, just pick one lane outside of Elise. I don't care where she goes. If she goes seven, you go eight, and that's all the way on the outside of the track, right? There was a Colombian girl and an American girl that were better than Brooke, um, and that's n- that's not to denounce her skill set. Sure, they were just better. They were in- better form into the race, better form in the years coming to the race. They also took each other out all the time. I knew that they were going to line up similarly close to each other. And if they were close to each other, we need to be on the outside of them. So whatever happens with those two, when they crash each other, we get a free gold medal. Mm -hmm. And I'll take that, Mm -hmm. right? Because we will cunningly pick our gate for a medal and give ourselves the best race. Yeah, what's wrong with strategy? Right. That's what you do. That's what you do. Colombian girl goes lane one inside of the track, shortest to the first turn. Elise goes lane four. So two and three are open. She should have took five. Two and three, whoever took two and three, they were smoked because we don't have lanes in BMX. When the gate drops, there's no lanes. So we cut off Mm -hmm. whoever is slower. So whoever's going two and three is dead because these two girls out here, they're so fast, you're not going to beat them. Girls in six or, yeah, girls in six, seven, and eight, they basically are just like doing a lap at the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> They're not getting a medal unless everybody crashes, uh, right? Yeah. So my idea was t- take lane six or take lane five. You don't have to worry about six, seven, and eight because they just are there mm-hmm. filling the gate. Two and three are going to get cut off. That leaves what? One, four, and five. Gold, silver, medal. Five minutes before the race, she texts me, I'm going inside. I fucking got it. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. (laughs) And I looked looked over at uh, Jason Richardson, Dr. Jason Richardson, um, our sports psychologist, and I said, bro, it's over. And I hate to say that. I was like, it's over. Yeah. There's no way. This is not, this is not the time to flex your ego. Yeah. Because going inside wasn't going to put us in that much better of a position. If she had the legs to win, she could have done it from four, from five. Right. It would have been better to just ch- choke up, take the outside lane, and be competitive from there and make a pass. Um, gate dropped, and she got cut off on the first battle. And she had to roll the first straight. And the girl that took five? Cruise right on cruise by. Cruise right on through to a bronze. Shit. Uh, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, because when she crossed the finish line and she came up, she was like, I, sh- I should have listened to you. And I really wanted to yell at her, you know, like just shake her. Like, you got to fucking listen. Mm-hmm. We only get this once every four years, you yeah. know, and the next one we're rolling the dice because you're going to be 27 at the Olympics and we don't know what your form's going to be like. And I didn't. I said, you know what? We make mistakes. We're at the Olympics. Let's just enjoy it. Yeah. And that that was that was my life experience of how I was going to handle the Olympics. I'm not going to come to Brazil and be a part of something so prestigious to lose my shit. Yeah. yeah. Sat with her family that night. We were a little somber, but you know what? I feel like I'm in good company. I love these people and we're experiencing something great. And afterwards, I had the conversation when we got home. We win together and we lose together. It's not my fault if I make a call and it doesn't work out. And it's not your fault if things don't work out when you make a call. We're a team. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You race the bike, but we're a team. But when I tell you a gate, it's because I know where you're at. Right. And I know what's best for you because we would have walked away with the medal. So we're going to try again in Tokyo. Nice. It'll yeah. be a little bit harder. It's going to be a little bit harder sure. this time. But you know what? Things can happen. Yeah. All she needs to do is get in that final. But what else are you going to do with, with life? Not try? Right. Right. Exactly. No, you, you try and you go out there and you, and you give it your best. And then when you fail, it's not really, doesn't mean you don't deserve it. It just means there's some more to learn. Yeah. There's some more work involved. It's, it's, a, it's a journey, not a destination until the end. Yeah. And I'm okay with that now. I stopped yeah. working for destinations. Yeah. You know, it's just one moment after another that's teaching me how I can be better. And that's the goal is to that. I would think if anything that I'm taking away from a conversation with you is, is even those little micro steps, that, that, as silly as it sounds, but I really wanted to talk to you about the brushing your teeth, the people you know, on yourself, the making your bed, the, the maybe organizing, uh, you know, I got two, two or three books on the nightstand that they're square with the table mm-hmm. or whatever it is that those little steps, that positive momentum that you can build day in and day out yep. uh, is, is so incredibly important to recovery and a purposeful life. Yep. And I think that um, beyond that, we have to talk about what we're going through. Yeah. You can organize your stuff, brush your teeth and not talk about your experiences and not treat the trauma and be discontent, unhappy, full of anxiety, fear, depression, you know, but maybe you just take that step and say, okay, not only am I going to micro process my way out of this, I'm finally going to ask for help. And I'm going to tell everything that I haven't ever said, finally going to open up about it. Cause that what you're not talking about, what you think is you've let it go. That's not there anymore. It's there. And it's directing your life. It's untreated trauma. Get a therapist. Go to meetings. Get a sponsor. Build a support group. And microprocess yourself into a new way. Period. If you don't talk, you're going to be haunted the rest of your life. I'm so convinced by that. And we learn not to talk in our childhood. Very true. Seen, not heard. our Our parents don't see us emotionally. When we speak out emotionally, they don't understand us. So then we feel shame. I don't. Well, why am I feeling this way? My parents are making me feel like how I feel is not right. So then we learn not to talk about how we feel. Yeah. Then we go out into the world, and they do the same thing. When we talk about how we feel, they shame us. So what do we do? We just learn not to talk about our stuff. Instead, we needed to learn that we do need to talk about our stuff, and we can't trust everybody with our stuff. That was uh, what you said right there, very harsh lesson for me mm-hmm. that, I, that I have yet to still acquire. Can't, can't with everybody. No. Can't. I don't go to my parents for emotional stuff anymore. Nope. Because every time I do, I look at them and I go, you don't get me, do you? <laughs> it is the most frustrating thing. I love them both. Yeah. And they love me too. <gasps> uh, but I that, that you don't get me feeling right here, yeah. it's like a coal and I'm being branded with something is wrong with you. And it's like, I don't, Nope. I go to therapy. I got friends that understand me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? it's, uh, it's, it, does that sound like the story, Mikey, when I uh, told you about when my dad saw my first tattoo? And, and the disappointment is like, and, and, and Tony, I, I literally looked at him. I'm like, all the shit you've done in your life, 
and you're pissed off because I had some some ink put into my skin with a series of needles. But a tattoo yeah. is with where a, we draw a, the line. With a meaningful <laughs> picture, I have C vice pass Baron C vice pass and parabellum on my back. Pray, mm-hmm. uh, pray for peace, par, uh, prepare for war, and it you know, and it's just like it, this is the fucking thing we're gonna get upset about. Yeah, this it, is it. This is it. Uh, you know, and that's like, uh, and shit, howdy, man. And we learn how to validate ourselves through therapy and means that way. Yeah. Shit, I got yeah. a tattoo on my neck. My dad didn't talk to me for a week. <laughs> <laughs> hey. It's like, hey, man, it ain't going anywhere. Yeah. That's too good. <laughs> it's permanent, and I'm permanently your son, so let's deal yeah. in reality here. <laughs> That's let's right. deal in reality. Uh, Tony, any of the last things you'd like to leave the listeners with and uh, some information on how they can find out more about you, what you're doing? Uh, maybe there's a, a school, an organization out there that uh, – that definitely needs to see, you know, uh, at least the the video that is available at your website, and the benefit of you coming and speaking um, can lend to to anyone and everyone. Yeah, absolutely. You can find my website TonyHoffmanSpeaking.com. That's where you find out everything about my speaking. Um, you can also find the videos and stuff on there. But otherwise, I'm on uh, Instagrams Tony M Hoffman. You can message me on there if you're looking for some advice. I have a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and the Google Podcast app called One Choice. And then I'm on Facebook at Tony Hoffman Speaking. Um, I'm not very active on Facebook. It's more for for business side. Um, But definitely reach out to me on on Instagram. And I just want to say thanks for this opportunity. You know, these are... Yeah, man. I'm glad I came up here. And this is why I wanted to drive up here because I knew... It would just be such a better vibe to come in here and, and, and chop it up with you guys. And Absolutely. Thank you guys for, for the opportunity. This has been amazing, and I hope everybody got something out of this. Oh, man, thank you. And I know I know that uh, I'm speaking for Mikey that we both did. Uh, again, Tony Hoffman, thank you for your time. Yes, thanks. Knocking doors down. Real people, real stories, real life. Real discussions of life struggles, including addiction, relationships, finances, and more. But even more importantly, living with them, overcoming them, and conquering them. Celebrities, experts, and everyday people talk about how they were able to break through whatever life handed them by knocking doors down. New podcast episodes are available every Thursday. Subscribe now on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, or at kddmediacompany.com. Uh, what can you say about Tony Hoffman, Mikey? It was very therapeutic. Yeah. It was very therapeutic. I like listening to him talk. He just, he knows his shit. You know what I mean? He does. He's, and, you know, I recommend following him on his social media page, which is at Tony M. Hoffman. Um, That's on Instagram, right? Instagram, correct. Yeah, yeah. do yourself a favor. Give, go give him a follow. It's uh, It'll be worth it. He's definitely... Uh, Definitely got some good content there. Yeah, insightful cat. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got some more exciting episodes headed your way, including Carlos Vieira next week. Mr. Carlos yes, Vieira. the author of Knocking Doors Down himself. We'll be discussing my favorite chapter, uh, racing and how it saved his life. And he'll actually go a little more in-depth to some stuff that isn't there in the book. And his lovely wife, Asia, is going to join us for that conversation, too, because kind of around that time was when their relationship started. Mm -hmm. So it'll be cool to have her insight and perspective on it as well. So I'm really looking forward to that episode. And many more exciting stuff still. Uh, Matt Gannon. uh, Got it. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Cut cut right there, Jason. Uh, Some other exciting episodes that are on the way. Matt Gannon, he's going to come on. He's going to talk about 
how his addiction just, ooh, man, I mean, one of those like Brandon Novak-like stories at the brink yeah. and how his poetry and music has really helped save his life. Mm-hmm. So that will be a great conversation and uh, play more other awesome episodes headed your way. So subscribe now. I can't wait. And if you're like, how do we find the Knocking Doors Down podcast? We are everywhere. Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher. And, of course, by going to kddmediacompany.com. Mikey, anything else? That is it. We appreciate you, ladies and gentlemen. Keep knocking doors down. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.